How you doing? The Cosmic Cowboy. Man, cool. how you like that? How many how many Cosmic Cowboys have you spoken to in the last week, Dale? Uh, zero. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, we've we've emailed, so. <laughs> well, that, well, that's that's worth something. That yeah. is worth something. Well, Dale, hey, welcome to the Edge Broadcast, man, and uh, uh, ancient indigenous sounds and things like that. We're going to be talking about, and I'm sure this freaking the hell out of people watching the program. But we're going to keep them on the line because you got a lot of good things to say. So before we get going, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, name's Dale Allen Hoffman. Uh, I've been, let's just to put it into a nutshell, I've been working with ancient languages for, oh, I mean, technically since I was seven years old, you know, looking at like biblical things mostly. I started with, you know, my grandmother's collection of Greek Bibles, lexicon Bibles, Latin, things like that. Just kept, I don't know, I, I just never seemed to find the right answers when mm -hmm. I would ask the questions. And then I had mm -hmm. to learn how to ask the right questions, I guess. But um, I just turned 50, and uh, I'm right now on my 30, getting ready to hit my 32nd year of teaching mm -hmm. these kinds of insights publicly. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm the, I was the odd man out for a long time. Now people are calling me a pioneer, but I'm like, it didn't feel like a pioneer back then, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so Dale, what kind of knowledge were you looking for? Um, I want honestly, I just wanted answers that made sense. Um, but you know, even like when I was seven years old, you know, the way it all started for me, it was the summer of 1979, and I sat on my grandmother's, the floor of my grandmother's living room, uh, and she was like a pillar in the the Methodist church had that same picture of Jesus that everybody had, sort of looking up toward the light back in the 70s and 80s, and I just I laid out five of her Bibles and uh, started comparing parts of the Gospel of Matthew to each other, and I just got a little confused. And I'm asking her questions, and uh, she would. We always talked about this until she passed almost ten years later. I actually think it was exactly ten years later, but um, she, you know, talked about how. You know, all the time, this inerrant word of God, the word of God, have faith, all these kinds of things. And I'm like, well, if there's, if this is, I didn't, I don't think I picked up the word inerrant at that time, but I'm like, if this is the word of God, why is it different in these different ones? She was like, well, you know, there's going to be a little bit of a difference depend on, and I'm like, well, if it's the word of God, though, how is it different enough, you know, me as a seven-year-old, I'm like, it's different enough that I can see that this doesn't mean what this means, and mm -hmm. I don't understand that. And, of course, she said, you have to take it on faith. And I'm like, well, what is faith? And she said, <laughs> faith will develop in time through faith. And I went, what? And I went to my, my minister at the church, and I asked him uh, the same questions, and I really didn't get the answers. And mm -hmm. I just started digging. And I think what I was really looking for was not just something, an answer that made sense, but something that, something I could feel. If, if if that is clear enough, something that would, I was like, you know, if this is the word of God, it should be like, it should be something that even me as a kid that I go <gasps> like that. And, um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I started getting little bits of that in the Greek for maybe 10, 12 years. And then all of a sudden when the Aramaic started coming in and it was a whole different ball game. Mm -hmm. So, hmm. So, so you you saw conflicts in your religious upbringing. 
Well, yeah. Well, what was interesting is, I mean, I guess I'm thankful that I was raised Methodist. It was Evangelical United Methodist Church, uh, Clarksboro, New Jersey. Uh, you'd think you'd think Evangelical and Methodist were kind of didn't work together, but um, intriguingly for me, it's like uh, I think I'm thankful that I was that it was Methodist because if, if I think of, if I was raised Southern Baptist, if I was raised Catholic, I think I'd have too much guilt or fear wrapped around things. And to be honest, being raised Methodist, it just felt like something people did on Sunday and they would mm -hmm. go on Sunday and it was, you know, somebody would die. We'd go over to their house and we'd eat food and we'd come home and everybody was really nice, but I don't know what it was. There's something in me that maybe because my parents were in the process of a divorce, there was stuff happening to me at night, you know, in relation to somebody in my family. And I, I just needed something to grab onto. And I yeah. felt like nobody had a lifeline for me. Mm. Nobody. Interesting. I, I, I just watched uh, uh, a Christmas story, uh, I went to a Christmas story. It was a play, and I've seen the oh, movie. Oh yeah, 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 cool. And uh, so I guess in 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 the in the in the play they go, uh, the kids are asked, talking to each other, and and one of the kids says to the other kid says, uh, "Are are you a Democrat or are you a Republican?" And he said, "No, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian." So, I mean, uh -huh. it kind of goes with what you're saying there, man. They're just sort of titles, but how how do you know that that you're it appears that maybe you have some your disgruntlement, I don't know if that's an appropriate term, but, but your, your, um, your impetus. I think to, I had it a long time ago. I processed okay. through that. Stuff so, so how do you know ago. though, that it was, it was, um, uh, started with the, say the Methodist type of version of things. Uh, I mean, does that exclude your knowledge of say, whatever the others are like the, the Baptist and the Presbyterians and the, Oh, I didn't know any at that age. I'm seven years old. My mm -hmm. only exposure was, going to the Methodist church on a Sunday and we would go across town after that, that service and go to the Episcopalian, mm -hmm. which I now call Catholic light, same great taste, less filling. But, um, it was it, you know, the Episcopalian church. We did that for years. It was very different. It was more pageantry, more, uh, you know, all the candles, the dark woods, etc. So, I mean, those mm -hmm. were the only two tastes I had till I was 10 years old, went with my friend Billy to a, a Catholic service, which was completely foreign to me. Mm -hmm. um, the kneeling, a lot of the prayers were very different. The Just the, I guess you could almost say the ritual of it, because honestly, growing up Methodist, it was just like, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the drone, mm -hmm. so to speak, which mm -hmm. isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I, You know, it, it felt warm and fuzzy on some level, but um, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact of my parents' divorce. I was looking for some kind of something to grab, mm -hmm. and I didn't have anything, and I didn't feel I was getting it from the church. And mm -hmm. that's the point when I started spending more time outside and would often take the Bible with me. And it was weird because, I mean, I didn't talk to a lot of – you know, my best friend David at that time I talked to about it. By the time I got into my mid-teens, I couldn't talk to my friends about my Bible stuff because literally my best friend as I was a teenager would go – yeah, would do this like retching thing whenever I'd mention Jesus or Bible. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, okay, so 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 a lot of kind of different things going on in your life, and you're you're moving along now. So you're you're moving towards something else, I, I guess. Is that what happened? How how did you start moving towards say in the direction that you are at? You find yourself at now. Well, I mean, you know, when I was seven, that's when I started 
thinking there's got to be something else, feeling it. By the time I was 14, I was doing what I call riffing on the words of Jesus. Where I, and I still have those Bibles on the bookshelf next to me. that were, Some were my grandmother's, some were my mother's. Uh, where I would actually go to, the, at that time when I was 14, going to the red words, you know, the words of Jesus, and I would write them down on a piece of paper, and then not in relation to, you know, lexicons or any of that kind of stuff, which I still hadn't fully grasped into yet, just writing down, like, pages and pages about what I felt was being said, like, what did it mean to me, you know, what was he mm -hmm. really talking about? Uh, you know, it's why I call it riffing. It's almost like an improv thing. I remember showing those to my mother once, but nobody ever read them. I didn't write them so somebody could read them. I wrote them because I had to, like it was enabling me to kind of focus my thoughts a little. And then when I was 21, that's when, after several years of hearing about Aramaic this or Hebrew that, that's finally when it clicked for me when someone said, you know, Dale, you should check out the Aramaic. And I'm like, mm. Arabic? And they're like, no, Aramaic. <laughs> and I'm like, what you know and i had heard about it it just didn't click and they're like yeah that's the language jesus spoke and that's when all of a sudden a light went pop and i went wait and this was the thing that it took me to be 21 before it clicked i went he didn't speak english and of course everybody's like it was my friend mitch down in florida he's mm -hmm. laughing at me and that's when all of a sudden like the room starts closing in and i'm like hold on a second here you know i'd never thought that he wasn't speaking english mm -hmm. And um, that's when I started digging in. I'm 50 now, so mm -hmm. that's like what 39 years ago. Mm -hmm. But um, so so Aramaic. Can you speak that language? I can speak some. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing about ancient Aramaic is nobody, although some people can lay claim that they do, nobody can be fluent in it because we don't know exactly what it sounded like. Um, you know, I can pick up a text. I can I can read I can read Esrangel and Midyat, different forms of Aramaic. Um, I lost the tension with that, you know, probably in my like late twenties, I was like, I realized that wasn't in the language itself. There was something more happening. That's when I started tracing backward to things like proto-Sinaitic, essentially the first alphabet, which is more related to Egypt, but also comes from a Semitic line. And I started kind of going backward, almost in more of an anthropological sense of trying to find not necessarily the mother tongue. We'll never find that, but but some kind of source roots where things, maybe a better idea of where things were coming from, not necessarily the Jesus teachings, mm -hmm. but more the, the sounds of the alphabets. And mm -hmm. why was it that, you know, the letters in Proto-Sinaitic, why was the Aleph a dox or a bull? You know, why was the bait or bet a, a house? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, why were all those, you know, having some kind of a symbology, and if you'd read the old stuff, it would say, well, essentially, these sounds they believed would exemplify states of being that were reflected in the way they were, you know, the letter shapes, etc. You know, reish is head, you know, shin is, was a lip with teeth underneath it. It meant shine, sheen, express. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, it was in my late, late 20s that I really started digging into that. And that's when I started getting into the more, I guess you could say mystical, digging into the Kabbalah, digging into the work mm -hmm. of people like Stan Tenen, who I found when I was, I guess, about 23, one of the first major people of the, of the late 20th century who was really finding true algorithms in the Bible, especially in, in the, the five books of Moses, mm -hmm. especially in Genesis, Bereshit, but especially in the first verse of Genesis. He's the mm -hmm. one that was revealing the star tetrahedrons and the double torus and all these different things 
that were created just by the 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 algorithms within that text which here's the interesting thing most people have no clue including so many bible experts that the original Bereshit, the original genesis it was almost a thousand years before that went from being just a string of characters like a mathematical algorithm with no spaces and no words it was just strings of letters mm -hmm. most people don't know it was almost a thousand years before those were broken there was final markers put on certain letters and that was starting to be broken down into words that were then ultimately a bit of time after that looked at in the sense of some kind of an ideology like people will say you know in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth that's one of one one of 913 plus ways that you can translate the first line but unfortunately what happened was when that starts going into the 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 septuagint which of course is 70 in greek in the koine greek all of a sudden we're now having con conceptual relationships with these concepts rather than having those direct vibrational experiences which mm -hmm. Fortunately, so, in the Hebraic culture, they're still toning so, today. So did you find information in the tones of the ancient text? The only way I can put that is this. It's not a cognitive, intellectual pursuit in that sense, although when you're looking at the letters and things like that, you can approach it that way. For me, it's more, you could say... You know, put it this way, truth is a direct experience. I can talk about a concept, I can walk around it, I can write books about it. But when I get to the place where I don't have words for something, that it's that, like as an example, just being in the other room with our, you know, our six-month-old baby, Eowyn. And I mean, if somebody were to walk up to me and say, you know, what do you feel about her? What do you think about her? What's your opinion on her? I would just say, you know. I have, why would I want to put that into words? I started realizing that what I was looking for as a kid was something that would make me speechless, something that would rock my world so much that I shuddered even at, at the thought of the experience. And those are the places I started getting into, which was interesting because there was a lot, a lag effect of people that were still coming to me looking for more language based stuff, like in terms of something more intellectual. And I was like moving into these like open spaces and these like cracks between dimensions and things of that nature mm -hmm. that I didn't really have words for for a long time. Uh, and it's amazing how you can make a sound and I don't I'm not aware of any technology faster than a tone and that includes breath work which I've done for decades meditation sure if you've been meditating for 30 years like you can get yourself into a deep place just by awareness but for a newbie no or any other kind of technology that just by a simple Oh, just making an awe sound for three seconds, and I'm in a completely different place when I, than I was before. And that's the first letter of most of those, almost all of the ancient alphabets. What was the reason for that? Why did they call it an ox? Why did they call it, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, when I started looking into those, I started realizing these were, you know, in the way that Stan Tennant says, he speaks of the letters like, the footsteps on the floor in the Arthur Murray dance studios back in the 50s and 60s where you'd have, you know, the left and the right, the blue and the red, and you'd have one, two, three, one, two, three. And if you would just stick your footprints, in other words, kind of step into the map in that actual pattern that they were giving us, 
mm-hmm. you would be able to, you know, experience the dance. Okay. So. Okay. All right. Well, let's get to a few questions coming in for you. It says, Dale, do you understand the ancient Gaelic? Uh, I don't understand Gaelic, but I will say this. The thing about Gaelic, and I would say even more so Welsh, there are absolutely direct connections to Aramaic, to the Semitic lines, also in, uh, in Gaiz and Amharic, which are down in Ethiopia, Somalia. No, I don't, but um, as a matter of fact, I was just over, we were just over in Europe a couple of months ago, and I was completely overwhelmed by some of the root sounds, uh, not the letters per se, but uh, but you could say the alphabet, and um, people were like swarming me with all this kind of stuff that I couldn't even, I couldn't even keep it in my head. So there's some, I, I will say no, but at the same time, I know there's a lot of connections. I just haven't had the time to dig in, so... Mm-hmm. Okay, and then uh, here's a question from Doug in Virginia. It says, Dale, what language did Yeshua speak? Well, he spoke Hebrew, of course, because he was Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, here, let me put it this way, okay? There's there's more problem, and, and of course, Aramaic was the, I say lingua franca, although I'm using a, a Latin phrase. So, it was, you know, it's it's Hebrew and Aramaic, but the thing that's interesting is Hebrew was used mostly in the temples at that time. Colloquially, people spoke Aramaic. But there's more of a problem of when we start asking specific questions about Yeshua is that we really don't know almost anything. We don't know who wrote these texts. We don't know who actually, if he actually said them. There was nobody walking behind him with a dictaphone. You know, if at the time, if you were to imply that the word of God was written on a page, you committed a blasphemy. So we start having that kind of problem, too. We start having these relationships with structures on a page instead of the actual experience of the words themselves. Um, But, you know, pretty much most people are in agreement that obviously he's going to speak Hebrew being Jewish and Mm -hmm. that especially in the Galilee, which is an Aramaic word that means wheel or Nazareth, not Sarit, which means initiate, uh, he would have been speaking Aramaic and a very mm-hmm. specific form, I would say, at that, because even in the Bible, you'll see that they'll say, oh, I can hear you're from the Galilee. That's like if I go to Boston and everybody's talking like that and, and I go up speaking like Jersey or, or Southern accent, people are going to be able to hear the difference. So, mm-hmm. OK, and we have this question. Uh, how did Babylon get to speaking Arabic, Aramaic? Arabic or Aramaic? I, mean, Aram- Ar- I would say Aramaic. Aramaic. Aramaic, yeah. yeah. You know, um, what's interesting is uh, Babylon, the entire idea of Babel, the entire idea of Babylon, funny, one of my teachers, one of my language coaches, I should say, is a guy named John McWhorter of Manhattan College. He wrote a great book called The Power of Babel about maybe 10 years ago. Um, Interesting thing for me, when I started digging in to a lot of the more cultural ideas, that's when my eyes started glazing over. You know, I was going to all these symposiums, going to all these Semitic conferences, etc., and noticing that there was all this discussion about, as an example, and histories that are absolutely, let's put it this way, you know, look at it just jumping over to America for a second here. You know, people, if I say a phrase like, okay, I cut down the cherry tree, I cannot tell a lie. You ask an American who said that, and they'll say, George Washington. Mm -hmm. He didn't say that. That's from a biographer 100 years later. Hmm. 
No, nobody, how many people actually know these kinds of things? Or as an example, you go to a car accident and 10 minutes earlier, it just happened. You ask 10 different people what happened, you get 10 different stories. Mm -hmm. My point I'm making here is, you know, when I was in my teen years, I had read a book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which was about a indigenous America. And it was reframing how everything that was in my history books was incorrect. Uh, one of the things about Babylon is it's one of those subject matters that when I came up face to face with, I couldn't get I couldn't get clear answers. And I have to say, we don't know exactly what happened. Most people won't give you that clear answer. If I, you know, go and read 10 different books, you know, I can think of um, Gazella's book here. I, I don't want to go off screen, but that came out a couple of years ago. He's saying stuff about the history of Aramaic that people had never said before that all of the history books were having particular ideas and he comes out with something totally out of left field. The truth is that I can give you ideas, but we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know a lot of things. So. Okay. All right. Um, believe in the live chat, by the way, people watching the program, putting their questions in the live chat. That's where I get where I'm getting them from right now. Uh, what is your background educationally? Educationally? Mm -hmm. I'm a civilian scholar. I, uh, yeah, that's the way I, you know, said it for a long time. But essentially, um, something told me not to go the theological route. It was an interesting thing. Some guidance I got early on from one of my earliest, one of my earliest Semitic coaches, which was basically telling me, he's like, you know, if you go to school, you're going to go to a theological seminary. And I did not. Uh, he's like, you're going to get programmed with a particular set of information, and then the more you're able to parrot back the program, the more you're going to be considered an expert. And I think the the greatest piece of advice he gave me was like, just stay away from that route and follow your heart. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't get listened to by a lot of people, because I didn't, I've read most of and studied most of what a lot of others have looked into. Um, but I'm not as interested in, like I say, the that physical conceptual part of me wasn't what interested me. I think it was in the beginning. It was the parts that made my heart blow wide open and mm -hmm. me to go into these different trans-dimensional states. And it's simply not allowed mm -hmm. in a lot of the, you know, all, pretty much everything I learned was one-on-one -on -one from Assyria, uh, Assyrian Aramaic speakers, Semitic speakers, Hebrew coaches, um, but very, almost nothing from schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay, let's get this this question here. Uh, by the way, in in the New Testament, it uh, Paul's talking and he says he met somebody whether he was in the body or whether he was not in the body, he couldn't tell. So that tells me there's a lot of heavy duty spiritual things going on there. You talk about trans uh, dimensionalism and things like that. Uh, wouldn't that be part of this type of thing that you're seeking? Well, it could be. It's interesting because if you look at like this, you know, we generally have polyanity is what I say, tongue in cheek. But if you actually get into the textual analysis of the things that are attributed to Paul and this, I have to, you know, one of my greatest teachers is a woman named Elaine Peggles, you know, who was at Princeton. I guess she might still be at Princeton, but I call her one of the rock star scholars. But, you know, she's one of those ones, along with like Marcus Borb, Shelby Spong, different people that put the idea that as much as two thirds of what's attributed to Paul were actually possibly later forgeries. It's interesting, an interesting thing about Paul, because Paul, uh, I think he got certain things. And I think what was 
really, to me, very human about what he recorded, what he put down for us, was that he spoke a lot of his own frailties. But intriguingly, if you pay attention to the texts that we absolutely know were his letters, and that was a traveling dude, if you look at the maps, if I look at his map today, 2,000 years later, it blows my mind. But when I think about the amount of travel he had to do back then, it's completely mm -hmm. insane. Mm -hmm. But he always talked about Christ as a vision of light. He didn't really have a lot in his letters about some physical man man named Yesho, which is kind of an interesting little side note. If you look at the work of – so I'll look at everything. I'll look at atheist material, satanic material, alien material. But if you look at the work of Tim Freak and Peter Gandy, they actually propose – as you know, also somebody like Peter Joseph, if anybody's ever seen the Zeitgeist films, or Acharya S., she was a friend of mine that passed a few years ago, but they proposed Jesus never existed. Mm -hmm. So, and that's a funny thing. When I first started hearing that, I balked, and I'm like, well, none of this makes sense. What am I doing? And it, it took me a while to send it, kind of get my heading again. But what's interesting about moments like that, me listening to people that had the exact opposite wavelength uh, of where they were coming from or opinions that were totally opposite of what I was thinking, I noticed that's what was allowing any kind of bias that I might have in my head to start shaking loose, meaning that I was listening to the people that uh, it almost was completely uncomfortable to listen to, mm -hmm. but it started opening me up and I started realizing it was less important what I thought I did know but rather, after all these decades, if there's anything I know, it's that I don't really know anything mm -hmm. about it. But I know what it feels like to be open. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. All right. We have this question here. Have you watched Sand Resonance on paper with sound and use that concept on different languages? Oh, you almost want to make me cry with that. So that's cymatics. Funny, because, you know, you heard Joshua's show the other day. Joshua, Joshua P. Warren and I, we've known each other 20 years. We've mm -hmm. done a lot of cymatic experiences. And one of the things I, I think I was on his show, I talked about an amazing video that's out by Nigel Stanford. He's an Australian guy. And it's just, just look up, go on YouTube, look up cymatics. Um, and I mean, that's, that's something that a guy named Ernst Claudney isn't back in the 19th century had, uh, it was an iron plate and he had some really pure like glass sand shavings. And what he did was he just, for whatever reason, started deciding to drag a violin bow uh, against the plate. And it started making these really amazing figures. You'll see those in the Stanford video. Uh, they say that in Sanskrit, they say that this, the, the, the Om that we all know of, mm -hmm. that classic Om figure, mm -hmm. came from a cymatic experience in a meditation from somebody actually making the sound. So mm -hmm. th th it's, it's, a, it's a part of, you know, some call it pseudoscience, but it's literally showing how vibration literally organizes matter. Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of experience with We've done lots of experiments with that, which, you know, sand or iron filings, etc. But also, uh, you know, using um, even digital replications of cymatic things that I've done at my, my events where, you know, I'll go and have like 3,000 people and I'll start toning and you'll be able to see the waves on the, on the screen. I think that's something that uh, we really need to start looking deeper into. Okay, and uh, here's Peter from Australia. It says, Dale, what is your opinion of the Septuagint? <laughs> yeah, so um, it's funny that, you know, 
at the time when that happened, when that went down, we're talking before Jesus ever walked the earth. When that went down, the rabbis of the day were literally howling and wailing, saying, look, they're like, this is horrifying, the worst thing that could ever happen, because now the people of the future are going to think that just this one singular, what's called Peshat, which is the top level Peshat, Remez, Darash, and Saad, the Pardes, which of course is the acronym for paradise. It's the four levels of, of, of exegesis or translation. They, would, they were saying that people are only going to see the top Peshat level that's in this Septuagint. It's called Septuagint, which is 70 in Greek, which is about how many scholars it took to translate it over the course of about 200 years. Um, when I really started getting into the, the gravity of the Septuagint and I started really looking into the difference between, you know, I'm not going to have the same experience in, you know, 2022 looking at the Hebrew Torah versus a Greek Septuagint that someone back then would have because they're having all these multitudes of layers and experiences and vibration. Um, Part of me, you know, a, a large part of me wants to say that it was almost like the that original vibrational experience was incredibly neutered that day. And for the longest time, you know, people would all, some people say Jesus, of course, only was working with the original Torah. Other people say no, they were using the Septuagint by then, which is kind of a sacrilegious idea, but maybe that's possible too. We don't really know. Um, if you look at the King James, they're like, oh, look, we went back to the original Hebrew. But if you go into the actual timeline of what happened with the 1611 King James, they were mostly just going back to Septuagint as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, basically, this is, this is, you know, here's the original Torah in my sense, and, you know, here's the Septuagint. And that doesn't make it worse or bad. It's just, it's kind of like lowering the resolution on a photo. You can still make out what it is, but it, you're not going to have the same experience, you know, as it is going from VHS to 8K or something. So, mm -hmm. Hmm. In, in all this research, uh, are, are you on the, are you on the search for a encounter with, uh, with the, the divine creator? No, it, it's there. I mean, I, you know, here's the interesting thing. And this came through a lot of these these Tony experiences and the breath work. I, it took a while to realize that I couldn't know God in that sense. You know, the, the, the phrase that I always say is what you're looking for is what is looking. And the funny thing about truth is it's a direct experience that, that will literally render one, you could almost say, mute. And for me those experiences happen. It doesn't, none of what I learned helped. Uh, none of the book smarts helps. The intellect doesn't help. It actually really only helps when I'm able to, regardless of everything I think I know, just let go. And when I say let go, I mean have, you know, that was known as the eye of the needle, Huria mm -hmm. in Aramaic. Funny that you know, that original translation, they say a camel through the eye of a needle, and they talked about there being a doorway in the, the walled city of Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, which isn't true. That was made up about 100 years ago, but the actual word isn't gamla, it's gamala in Aramaic, which isn't a camel through the eye of a needle, it's a braided rope. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get a camel through the eye of a needle unless you're really grotesque and gruesome, and you do it one cell mm -hmm. at a time, and it's going to be very bloody. You mm -hmm. can get a braided rope through, though, and that's the untangling, that's the shbuk, which is that word uh, forgive, which actually means 
to, to completely untie or to let go, to cancel something. Mm-hmm. You can unwind those belief systems, the BS that we have, and start putting things through a strand at a time. Well, well, Dale, you know, when you're talking about a strand or you're talking about a camel, the premise of that, I believe, was that uh, Jesus was saying that everyone has sinned and so nobody's going to go to heaven, but it, it's impossible for an eye, a camel to go through an eye of a needle, but with God, all things are possible. What he was saying was, even though within your sins, as they uh, be that as they are, and you deserve a punishment for that, the miracle of a camel going through an eye of a needle, because with God, all things are possible. In other words, you're, it may seem impossible for you to get to heaven, but you can because with God is all things are possible. So does it really matter if it's a camel or a rope? Well, it doesn't matter in that sense, in the sense that it does matter that it's a rope because that's something that has, that can be done very mindfully rather than, and he's not saying something can't be done. And I'll say that in Aramaic, it's much, much more clear than that. And it's something that, you know, it took me a while to be able to, have enough of the actual experience in that to realize what he was saying. The eye of the needle is something that it's not only in the Jesus teachings. And also when he would say, I am the gate, that's the word Torea, or the veil of the temple, Ape Torea, the Hykla, Matthew 27, 51. Torea is a word that means portal. It means an open space. And when he's talking about I am, the, you know, I am alone, he clearly wasn't talking about himself because if he was talking about himself, he would say Anatorea. Mm-hmm. Or as an example, I am the bread of life, Ana Lachma the High. But he didn't say Ana as in I, Jesus. He mm-hmm. said Ana, Ana, which in Aramaic is very literally I, I, the I within the I, the I behind the I. When that went into the Greek, it became in the Koine, Ego Ami, which is I, individualized self, M. There's no word for M in Aramaic. And Aramaic was actually the I, I. So what he's talking about is that deeper place within us. The problem is people are thinking that you, you know, something physical can't get backward into heaven, but they have the whole thing backward because this world, this isn't what's real. This isn't what's real. They're trying to take something and run the whole system in a way that it's funny when you start to realize that he was talking about being in this world, though, not of it. And he had so many words for it. The primary word he used was mamuna which, of course, the, they just translated as money. Mamuna is a very interesting word because it was, what it means is materiality. It means that what your brain is telling you, all this physical stuff, is what's real. And mm-hmm. another interesting one from Paul, where he taught, is it First John? First Johannan. He talked about um, where he was talking about, you know, the root of all evil, interestingly. Mm-hmm. And that word was kespa, not money is the root of all evil. What kespa means is not physical money, let's exchange money. What kespa means in Aramaic is the belief in the illusion of a rate of exchange. That means that somehow I can give you something that when I give it to you, now you feel that you're, you're somehow richer because of a possession, something physical, self-worth, whatever, or somehow I can take something from you that makes you less. But Yeshua's teachings weren't about us becoming any kind of a conceptual anything in any way, shape, or form, what he was doing was showing us that this isn't what's real. What's real is what's looking. 
Mm-hmm. Most people that can't let ho- hold let go of their intellect, they'll never understand it. And that includes most of the disciples. They to- he told them flat out over and over, just in the standard four Gospels alone, he said over and over, basically, you guys are my front line. I'm paraphrasing, but you don't get it. How are they supposed to get it if you don't? Mm-hmm. So okay, it's not going to happen, you know, between the ears, so to speak. But Okay. Um well, it does say that it does say that the mind can't know the things of God. That's for sure. Uh, Timix one says, Dale, do you believe God has sent a great delusion down to mankind? People have to understand the nature of what we're talking about when we say God, or or the phrase God sent or sending a delusion. In order for an absolute, I I, I shy away from the word oneness. Because oneness in mathematics implies two, it implies zero, one, two, etc. Uh, but in order for something, let me put it this way, the word Yeshua used for God, he didn't use Elohim, one and many. He used Allaha, which in Aramaic, literal translation, absolute only, keyword being, absolute only being. People aren't understanding that like as an example, what we call the Old Testament was about some kind of overarching power that people were misunderstanding, like they were misunderstanding human frailty, human screw-up as somehow the will of God. They were taking the many and trying to turn it back on the one. Yeshua came and he said, look, very clearly, there's nothing outside of the one. There's nothing outside of Allaha. The Al literally means one or only. And what's interesting about that, you start to realize in order for something that is absolute and fully single, in order for that to birth itself out, it has to break itself. It has to, in other words, turn it to some sense of a duality. Mm -hmm. And that's what the idea of the Father, which is the absolute, the Son, which is the creation, and not the Holy Ghost, but the Ruhadakudsha, the whole, all-embracing, feminine, not masculine breath of the absolute. And when you start to look at that, you start to realize how much we almost set up all that we have this human anthropomorphization of putting these human traits back on an idea of a conceptual God, rather than realizing that, you know, we are, I say it in the sweetest sense, it's almost like one tiny little cell. I use, use my light pen here a lot, you know, we're just one little dot here. And we make the mistake of believing there's seven people walking across the earth when in reality there's only one. But mm. and that's literally when he what people say, yeah, Jesus spoke as, you know, spoke as God, and that's a literal statement. And I'm you know I'm like he didn't think he was God, he didn't even just know he was God, mm. he was. But the concept part wasn't there as much. He was trying to basically trying to share that for other people. Mm-hmm. It's like the idea of the demiurge or all these different things and Gnosticism. These aren't God-created things per se, although in a sense everything's within that one. It's our own junk basically smacking us back in the face. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. Uh, our moderator, Jay, says, uh, Dale, so with your knowledge of the ancient languages, have you, how do you interpret the triumvirate of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one being. Well, it's kind of what I just said is, you know, if you, and and that's not a Christian idea, it goes back far before that, as much as 10,000 years, but the Father is the absolute. What we're saying by that, it's not Father masculine. People have to understand 
what masculine and feminine even mean. Uh, but what that's really saying is an absolute, the undivided. There's no other. It has no other. And then the sun, of course, is the creation. It's not just the child. It's all of the physical universe, etc. And then not Holy Ghost. Funny, in the 1611, uh, it says holy with a small, a lowercase h, ghost with a capital G. I'm like, what in the heck is that supposed to mean? It capitalized the H at least for holy. But that's that the breath, the spirit, that's the rukha spirit. In Aramaic, rukha literally is the word breath. It's the word magnetism. It's the word, you could say radiation today, uh, nuclear forces, etc. And that's that feminine, that's the life within all. Unfortunately, you know, it was taken by the church very much, the Catholic church, and turned into a conceptual physical thing and as soon as you take something that's a direct experience and essentially you know make it into a physical concept you essentially neuter it and kill it so so, so you don't you don't believe in the masculine uh, aspect of uh, of god no i'm saying you have to understand what masculine means most people including people that have been studying the bible for 50 years don't know what it means i mean what what's the concept of masculine that you and I'm speaking from a 2,000-year-old understanding there. What, do you, what would you say the, the masculine means? Male? Father? What does male mean? Seriously, what, what is from father, father or male, what do those actually mean? What does masculine mm -hmm. mean? Mm -hmm. We have this, you know, a weird understanding. And I'm not saying you, but odd mm -hmm. understanding today. People don't understand, um, I think, what, what gender means mm -hmm. well i think well i i mean i agree with you they don't understand what gender means and uh there's definitely a lot of political uh background to this where there people are saying there's no such thing as a male or a female and 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 uh these these types of things men can get pregnant so man you're kind of veering off into that kind of area when you when you talk like that aren't you well, I'm not, I'm not veering off into that area because you, you can't answer. I say it with all the love in my heart. You haven't answered the question yet. What do you think masculine means? Okay. Well, I would say in biology, it means uh, the male figure uh, that has certain uh, chromosomes that make them different from, the, say, the female. So you figure that when Jesus is talking about father, he's talking about something on the physical level, you're saying? That has to do with chromosomes or DNA or or a physical in here uh, and Audi like a penis that, or no, a that, that, no that would be a type in a shadow. That's how I would view it. Type in a okay. shadow as a say a fatherly figure, a male figure being a protector, um, uh, a builder, um, a caretaker of the female type of thing to to look over her welf welfare. Uh, to look over creation. So that as would be a called father. a misogynist view. Interestingly. Uh, until about maybe 750 years before, and I, I'm not I'm not being critical in that sense. I don't want okay. you to feel it that way. But no, I don't. About 750 years prior to Yeshua's birth, up to that point, according to all anthropology, uh, we were in a complete completely matriarchal society. And an interesting thing here. Well, let's just go back to that the question first. Masculine. Mm -hmm. It's actually very simple. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with even biology. It just has to do with basic physics. Masculine is, you know, let me look at it in uh, first in the physical sense and then in a little bit more of a, you could say, mystical sense. Okay. Masculine is like an arc of electricity. It projects, period. 
the the feminine is magnetism she draws in she nests like ma- you know like you could say breath that's feminine uh magnetism feminine etc um in terms of language with aramaic my my observation of this pen is feminine the actual pen itself is masculine okay Okay. Now, another way of looking at that as well is if I go like this and breathe on my arm, a lot of, I'll say to people, what is that, you know, what is that that I just felt on my arm? It's a simple, you know, I, you don't even have to answer it. People always say, what? I say, what is it? They say it's breath. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's not breath in the Aramaic understanding. That's hot air. Mm-hmm. Breath mm-hmm. in Aramaic is a feminine gendered term, which means that, it can't be a physical mm-hmm. thing. Wind is another example. Mm-hmm. People say, all right, hold on a second. How can breath not be physical? How can wind not be physical? Because in the Aramaic culture, it was not the hot air in my lungs that was considered breath. The physical thing, the projection, you could say, the masculine, but rather my feminine perception of its frequency or movement. Mm-hmm. Well, Another I mean, example, as as when you hear wind... Wind isn't what I'm feeling on my skin, but rather my perception of Mm -hmm. its movement. Mm -hmm. So the difference between in order for the absolute to birth out, it has to instantaneously create masculine and feminine, which is, of course, projection and you could say breadth, so to speak. Until somebody has the direct realizational experience of that, you know, it's like trying to explain mars to somebody that doesn't know you know anything beyond the earth so, so but we're, we're talking about a supernatural creator but in the natural uh do you believe there is a male and a female well there has to be okay there has to be in terms of you know there has to be some kind of you know expansive force and there mm-hmm. has to be some kind of mm-hmm. retraction not contraction mm-hmm. retraction big difference. well well the bible describes so, god but it, it, interestingly though i'll say this if we and this is exactly what Yeshua was teaching about taking our eye off the physical. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing to see people confusing, you know, let's put it this way, what more truly been, you know, open, absolute self-created being could there possibly be than after thousands of years of what I would almost call, you know, a little bit of a overfocus on masculinity started to find a way to bring more feminine energy through a masculine appearing human and more feminine masculine energy through feminine humans. Now mm-hmm. people will ask me a lot of times, do I feel it's right or wrong? You know, all this LGBTQ, everything I'm like, well, right or wrong doesn't have anything to do with it. What's interesting is the problem we have is in the judgment. The problem isn't in it itself. And um, it's just, all I can say is when your heart's been peeled back enough, you start, you know, you kind of stop dropping, dropping any kind of a pointer at things. You know, let mm-hmm. me give you another idea of that. People often have this like, there's like sort of the hippie-ish idea of this utopia where everybody lives in a peaceful society and we all sing kumbaya. And I have a very valid question I always ask in those cases. I'm like, well, where would Ted Nugent live? And people are like, ha ha ha. And I'm like, no, I'm asking you actually a very serious question here, you know. Um, the first place I really became known was in Texas, you know, and it's interesting. I'm, well, he's there now. He's from Michigan, but I'm like, think about this. You're trying to push your, so many of these kind of the, the piece, the pseudo piece, I call it, it's not real piece, but this pseudo piece thing that wants to push its idea of everybody 
somehow living in this kind of ho-hum, no conflict, no violence world. And I'm like, the interesting thing about that utopian idea is that here it is, we've got, and I use Ted as an example of someone who speaks what he says. If I ask him, I've never met him. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that if I ask him a question, he's going to give me a direct answer. He's not Mm going to bullshit me. I might not like the answer. To me, I have a lot more respect for that than I do for this sort of, you know, no pseudo peace, et cetera thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in a sort of a hotbed of, of freaks, I guess you could say, and I'm proud to be one of those. Um, but I mean, I think people are mistaking, you know, a biological masculine and feminine. And mm-hmm. again, it's the anthropomorphization of putting that back on, you know, mm-hmm. that actual. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of that, a lot of that really. In the end, we're just fingers okay. pointing at the moon. Okay, okay but, Dale, a lot know. of that comes from really the teaching of Jesus where he says things like, I, I and my father are one. Um, and if you know me, you know the father. Um, so he's describing God himself at, in, in the masculine term there. So why would we. He, well, actually, what he said was he said Anna and Abba. So he's not saying me, Jesus, okay, and, and unless you actually know the, the, the actual texts. That's mm. the problem. You're kind of coming from corrupt data. Mm. Abba is an interesting thing because Abba is not something that you would turn to your father and say Abba. It's not that kind of a term. Mm-hmm. Ab, you have, again, you've got to understand what masculine and feminine mean. And I'm going to give you a primordial example okay. of what this meant to the ancient Hebraic mind. Let's say I've got like a primordial smoke in my mouth. And of course, the first letter of the alphabet is the Aleph. It just sounds like this. And then all of a sudden, I bring my lips together and I make the second letter, which is bait, which is ob, ob. That smoke's going to stop and it's going to have these two contiguous little clouds. Ob is the root sound Mm. for father in the way that it's used. It has nothing to do with a dad or a physical masculine father. Mm -hmm. What that actually means is the point where one becomes two. It's all about frequency. It Mm -hmm. was exemplified by the first letter, which literally looked like this. It -hmm. was called ox. Mm -hmm. It was the aleph. And what the aleph was, the reason they called it ox, or you could even say bull, was because the ox used its entire body holistically, not just its brain, mm-hmm. but its entire body holistically in a state of wholeness, and that's why it was so powerful. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Okay. That means that true strength exists only when one is in unity. Mm-hmm. And when the birthing happens, the second letter was house, which was bet or bait. And what that is is the differentiation between inside and outside. That's the birth of mother and father, that kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. But what he's talking about is behind that. Just because the translations say father, that's not what it was saying mm-hmm. in the air. Okay, so so let's just say, from the aspect of, say, corrupt data, um, this country was founded basically on what you would call that corrupt data. They didn't have the interpretations that you do or the research. Actually, or- it wasn't. You, you think America was based on Christianity? Have you? How much have you studied actual U.S.? I grew up in Philadelphia, okay. so that's like my that's my childhood. Well, every every university uh, every university in the country was founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's just that's that's a fact. I'm not talking about the university. I'm talking about the country. Okay, okay, and, I yeah. understand that. But yeah. the people that that founded those universities were Christians, and they did that for Yale, Harvard, all of them, Princeton, all of them. Of course, they're not that way now. They're obviously teaching the, the opposite of that. 
But in the beginning, the, from the Magna Carta to the Declaration of Independence, all of them relied upon uh, a divine being, uh, which they believe was a father, fatherly figure. So what I'm saying is to you, Dale, is you and I are both speaking on, on high technology and broadcasting around the world as it is and all the things that go with that. But all that, if you bring it back, it all comes back to the pilgrims when they landed there and they said, we're going to dedicate this land to the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what I'm saying is, the and in the great reformations and the great the great revivals that happened in this country. Long way have, around have, the barn. They put us, whatever that beginning is, when the when the pilgrims were on the ships and they made their agreement and then they came and then they declared this is land dedicated to God. Whatever and however you dispute that, that has brought us to this. So I would say that whatever they started 500 years later, we're in a pretty good place. So how is it that if their interpretation was so off, then how are we enjoying such benefits from it? So you think that just because someone starts with corrupt data that they can't sustain some kind of an ideology or a belief system? Or that something won't be successful just because kind of basically all of our culture, let's put it this way. You know, I live in the South. Uh, there's billboards all over the place in, you know, King James English. Mm -hmm. um, verily, verily, I say unto thee, all these different kinds of billboards, which of course is a, that's a 17th century understanding, about 500 years old for us, of something that's 2,000 years old. The question that you're asking me has literally nothing to do with how our country is now, whether data had issues of corruption or not, about whether it would be, you know, still look kind of successful compared to other places or not. They're absolutely apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. And I say well, that with all the respect okay. in the world. No, I, so. I, I definitely understand. But uh, let's, let's compare, say, China, whose beginnings didn't come from that that source of corrupt data, as you describe it. And now they're have they have lockdowns and they put people in prison. They have entire cities of. of you know how many variables go into that? You know, whether it be, yeah. you know, the, the flavor of leadership, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many variables mm -hmm. in all of it. I will say this, you know, um, I don't want to like Lee Greenwood here, um, but, you know, the more I visit other places, I got to say I'm proud to be American and I'm not going to be, you know, out there, you know, waving my hands exactly. But uh, it's, I don't think people understand and I don't say frailty in a way of weakness. I don't think most, mm -hmm. you know, most Americans, and I'm not saying that about you, understand it's almost like an apple of the eye situation. There's like an, almost like a self-entitlement a lot of people feel. Like as an example, my, my family, you know, not me, um, you know, there's a lot of military background. And, you know, I have a lot of the sort of, you know, hippie sort of peace types and you know i say pseudo peace types who you know want to slam that and i'm like it's an interesting kind of place for you to be in because not only have i lost lots of people who were defending this country who's in a pretty amazing space you know mm -hmm. in that sense mm -hmm. um i'm not one of the ones that is mm -hmm. uh, well do you, you understand my point like, is is that okay let me put another way to you dale if we had the correct understanding, and it sounds like you've done some pretty good research, too. Um, if we had, if from the beginning, if we had the understanding that you're espousing here, where would we be as a country? I don't know, but it would be, you know, even more amazing. 
I'm not saying it's wrong. What I'm saying, it's low volume. Some places it is wrong. You know, some places very much. You can go from the King James, or not even, and I'm not even knocking the King James. It was considered a political document, not a or political treatise, not a religious document. But you know, it, like you can just look at you know one of the the 1611 versus the King James versus the New King James, which are all a little bit different. And my point in that is, you know, if just because, you know, I can hotwire something, I can do bad electrical work, it doesn't mean my house's electrical system isn't going to work. But if somebody comes along to me and says, you know what, I can increase your efficiency and your capacity by 80%, I can lower your energy expenditures, I'd be very interested in something like that. And that's what I'm speaking of. And it's not pissing on or disrespecting the person that put in the original wiring you know and that's something that it's it's funny i put a video out a few weeks ago on youtube it was called the, it said the most difficult uh thing you will face is a way shower and i only settled on the word way shower shower because i don't want to use light worker or all this new age crap that's out there but i'm like i didn't know what other word to use and the most difficult thing was especially me you know being basically christocentric is that when I say things, and it's this, it's, this is what we do as humans. You've had this experience. I've had this experience. Pete, the hardest part is when you say something, express something from a really deep space in your heart, especially on the first pass, people aren't even going to hear that. And I don't mean you. You're a lot deeper than you know a lot of the conversa <laughs> conversations I would have on a daily basis. But what's first going to happen is it's going to shatter or it's going to start shaking the, I want to say conditioning and indoctrination, but I'm not saying that is a bad thing. What I'm saying is if I tell somebody, you know, don't think about a purple elephant, you're all of a sudden thinking about a purple elephant. Mm -hmm. But if I say, don't think about a, you know, an inner outer diddly wad, if you don't have a reference point in your head, there's nothing to actually think about. What I'm saying is the hard thing about what I do is people generally, especially on first pass, often don't hear what I'm saying. They just hear what it's rattling loose within them. And that's just mm -hmm. like me. If I go like to an auto mechanic seminar, I could probably stay conscious for about three minutes, mm -hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden, um, maybe not so much. Yeah, I'm not, don't misinterpret what I'm saying that I'm somehow knocking our founding fathers, but right. no, the country no. absolutely was not founded on Christianity, it absolutely was founded on uh, on on religious freedom, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you start digging into like the Pentecostal movements of like, especially like places like Western New York and, mm -hmm. you know, the whole Joseph Smith thing and the Mormons and all that, you start looking into it. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's many places well, do you, on the do you planet agree? where we'd well, Dale, be able to do the things we do. Dale, do you agree yeah. with my earlier statement that all the major universities were founded on Christianity? All right, let's go to another question here. It says, um, the ocean has a masculine spirit and is alive. Have you have you heard of this? The what? The ocean? The has ocean, a <clears throat> Yeah as a masculine spirit as an, and as alive. Yeah, it's actually a, well, it's actually, <laughs> intriguingly, the ocean would be considered masculine and feminine, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the flowing and or retraction aspect would be feminine. And as far as alive, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to one other thing. Um, Christianity, 
uh, is a personal concept. And, you know, if we talk about particular, you know, agreed upon doctrines, and I don't want to use the word dogmas per se, um, that the colleges were very much established under, and especially when we're speaking of the universities, I'm not talking about necessarily just community colleges, mm -hmm. it was definitely established on doctrines that were considered to be Christian. So that's my response to that. The, um, uh, most people, you know, I don't know that we know fully what it, what it, that even means. And, of course, he wasn't a Christian anyway. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know Benjamin Franklin said one time, he said, the older I get, the more I'm convinced God rules in the affairs of men. So <clears throat> I'm hoping he's ruling, <clears throat> he's involved with the affairs going on in this country. But a lot a lot of people... Well, God can't be separate. That's, that's, the, that's the mistake <clears throat> we're making, is we're turning it into some kind of, again, we're doing, projecting human dualistic traits on mm -hmm. everything on the so entirety you, of what we're within okay dale dale allen hoffman do you do you think that there is a, a undeniable truth just truth in general do you think there is truth truth it, it's a funny concept because the question itself is it's almost like a, and i'm not saying this about you it's a self-mockery yeah. of itself All right. um if in order for something to have an ability to be denied, then you don't understand what truth is. You're you're taking something again that's absolute and manifesting it, and again putting dualistic qualities. Truth is a is is beyond words. Truth is something that you can't have an accurate opinion about. You can't have even a full experience of because in order to have the full experience you literally would cease to be a separate being from mm -hmm. it. Okay. And it's like once your heart gets that experience, you know, the question kind of becomes something you can just sort of smile at and say, you know, that's nice. But mm -hmm. and I, I, I am not disrespecting you in any way. This is a great interview, no. by the way. Thank you. I love this. I can't wait to share it. So hey, not, <laughs> not not a problem, Dale. Uh, so um would you say that uh, the sky is blue? Well, the funny uh, physics tells us the sky is the the blue is the color that's not there. Okay. And it also tells us it's a refraction. Uh, it's the bending of of the atmosphere of the Earth. So I wouldn't say the sky is or isn't blue. Would you say you know? Would you say the absence of uh, of heat is cold? It feels cold. Is it cold? I don't know. It feels it. Feels that to me. Feels cold. Okay. Feels what I call cold, okay. which is, you know, whatever they say, slower moving electrons. Mm -hmm. You can't get there from here, but this is a fun dance. I'm, I'm, I'm are you, having a lot are of you, fun with it. Are you in your monitor? Are you looking at Daniel Ott? I'm looking at my monitor. I see. I, I'm assuming you're Daniel Ott because I've only known you for about a week. Right. You're the cosmic cowboy, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, I, am I looking at you? Yeah. No, but I'm looking at a, like a representation. Absolutely. Okay. But that I assume is you. I don't know. You could be somebody completely different. I've never <laughs> met you. So. <laughs> No, that's 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 cool. No, that that's a good answer. That's that's good. The only You're, reason I even, you know, what's cool is, yeah, I mean, you you know, you heard me on Joshua's show, but the first thing I did was I was like, well, let me go look at his site really quick. And when I saw that Josh was on yours, I didn't even ask him. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it, sure. Yeah, so. yeah, I had him on here, man, because I want to talk about Brown Mountain Lights because uh, which watch... is just a little ways from us. So yeah. oh, really? So it's Brown Mountain. Yeah, I'm, I live in Asheville, so oh, it's just right, I say right up the road. It's from here about an hour and 20 minutes. He and I had talked like 15 years ago about mm -hmm. 
him and Micah and all those guys taking me out there and like leaving me out there overnight to see if I like picked anything up, but it yeah. never actually happened. They told me they were going to lock me in the basements of haunted houses. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> I, mean, I, I was just at Brown Mountain about two weeks ago. Really? Yeah, yeah. I'm in Asheville. I'm in West Asheville. Yeah, and we went through we went through Asheville as well. Of course, now Asheville has sort of, sort of here from the Midwest. I mean, from of course whatever my limited sphere of, of contacts are that that that, that uh, Asheville it has a lot of sort of uh, uh, businesses like um, tarot reading and, and maybe witchcraft. Is it is this true? Well, it's funny. I make the joke. When I'm around, you know, different places, especially in the U.S., I'm like, you got to be careful walking downtown Asheville. You might trip and fall over a Reiki master. And I don't mm-hmm. mean that as a disrespect, but there's there's some truth in that. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. a lot. You know, people will call it a spiritual epicenter or whatever. You know, I've been here 20 years. Josh was a lifetimer until he moved to Puerto Rico and then Vegas. But I have to say, you know, being here for a long time, maybe it's kind of similar to Sedona in that sense. I'm starting to see Asheville kind of take on a persona of itself, so to speak. So Mm -hmm. uh, its reputation precedes itself. Okay. All right. We have this question here. Um, There is verses in the Bible from Jade says, how do you interpret where it it says, no one gets to the Father but by me? And I believe that was Jesus speaking. Yeah, well, I'd have to look at the actual line. What is the... um, what was the the verse? I'm trying to. Isn't that in two different places? Uh, well, is that the well, Gospel of John. Well, I, I don't. I don't know. We don't. We don't have the text. The but text anyway, there. So. But you know, I, I would have to. You know, unless it was at the top of my head, you know, from the Aramaic, I'd have to. I'd have to look at it. But I mean, if I here's the thing, mm-hmm. if someone's asking for an Aramaic interpretation and I just give my opinion, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't mean anything. Is what I'm mm-hmm. saying. You know, I'd have to actually mm-hmm. look at what it's said. Mm-hmm first so mm-hmm. are, are, are you are you are you speaking on a headset yeah okay well i would say that's true and doesn't that make that a truth what's what's true it's it is true that you're speaking on a headset well just because something's true doesn't make it a truth there are two <laughs> apples and oranges two dale. completely different things come on dale so, you're fun. Yeah, man. I'm not. See, here's you're my, a fun my guy, point. man. You're a real fun I know, guy. Well, I know. It is, well, here's my point. Constantly, and this isn't a disrespect. Bullshit, babying shit down to a human level, yeah. and trying to speak of the divinity and the eternity mm-hmm. that is the absolute, and project our cute little things on that. And all I can say is this: once your your heart is wide open and your supposedly human, human, humanus, Latin brain is mm-hmm. fried. All that stuff becomes nothing more than pissing in the wind and, you know, fingers pointing at the moon. And I say mm-hmm. that with all the respect in the world. Mm-hmm. So you know, you, I, I, 20 years ago, I would have batted the ball back and forth yeah. with you. Now it just, it's, it's just cute. And I'm not disrespecting. Now, no, of course not. I'm, I'm having fun with you, man. So, so would you consider yourself then a, a sort of a contrarian? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I would say of a truth you fuck, are. Fuck but... the labels, man. All of the, you know you know what I consider myself? I'm, I'm open. My, my license plate literally says open, which is funny, you know. Uh, you know, people, my wife is who's a, a model. She, you know, people mm-hmm. will stop her. What is the license plate all about? You know, it's like, well, not what you think. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, 
here's my point. You know, I don't, it's been a long time since I've nailed my furniture to the floor in an intellectual sense. Because any time I've ever thought I really had something figured out, and this is after decades and mm-hmm. decades and decades of looking under the rocks that I was told not to look under, looking on the, under the rocks that everybody else that was an expert looked under, uh, there, after a while you start realizing that you know as soon as you nail something down, you're no longer open. You are no longer what Yeshua said before a healing, a fatah, which means open. Mm-hmm. You're now just a concept. You are... Yeah, and I'm not saying you when I'm saying, but you, you become, when he spoke of that in which you judge another, you were guilty of practice. Mm-hmm. And then he said, what was the word? Hypocrite. What does hypocrite mean? Mm-hmm. Well, well, I, I grabbed this, uh, as you see in our... Well, hold on. It, what does hypocrite mean? A hypocrite? Uh, somebody who says something that, that uh, they're probably it's guilty of doing? It's got a very specific meaning in Aramaic. So the words ape in Aramaic, yeah. what ape means, funny, because it's the same word as veil, the veil mm-hmm. of the temple. Mm-hmm. What it means is persona. What does persona mean? Persona is a Latin word that meant mask. Mm -hmm. The ape was a very specific mask that an actor would wear in a divine play in Yeshua's time. And they would, of course, begin that play wearing the mask. Mm -hmm. And when it would lower at ultimately the point of the end of the, the, the divine play is the mask would be dropped. Mm-hmm. Most people are looking at this part of Jesus. Mm-hmm. They're looking at the physical man. They're not understanding, as an example, the Anana is the bread of life. Anana is Nuhradeyama, light of the world. Mm-hmm. People are mistakenly looking at a okay. human. Okay, okay. So, Dale, you, you see, I've got this in the background. I found uh-huh. it some, somewhere on the web, on some, mm-hmm. some obscure website. Oh, you can't it's see bent this. out of shape. <laughs> oh, you can't see our background? No, I see it. It's okay. Just okay. warped. It's warped. Okay. okay, okay. So, all right. So, right there in big letters, I am. Now, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We were discussing what is truth. Jesus claims to be the truth. He also claims to be the I am. And, in fact, when somebody asked him, they said, who are you? He said, I you am. You weren't listening to me earlier, were you? I'm listening just to myself, and I sound. I'm listening to myself, and I sound pretty good. What, what do you got to say? Okay. Well, I was talking about I am and what that was in Aramaic. It's yeah. actually one word twice. There's no yeah. way to say I am in Aramaic. There's no am. Yeah. I told you that's so. Okay. 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 So, so going with your okay, give, giving you credit. Then, did Jesus misspeak? Number one, I. <laughs> you didn't hear what I said earlier which is that he didn't say I am. If he said I am, according to the, what the texts say, he would say, as an example, and I already said this, but I'll repeat okay, it again. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. On, ana lachma dehai, I, Jesus, ana, am the bread of life, as an example. But that's not what was said. In the Aramaic, it says anana, which is the I within the I, or I, I. In other words, it's something that can't possibly confused, be confused as a physical human being, but... Again, what you're looking for is what is looking. But if I'm saying that to someone who doesn't have, you know, I don't want to say the reality structure, but the the realization to to comprehend it, and that's not a mm-hmm. put down. Right. No. I could speak until I'm blue in the face, and you. Well, you I'm I'm trying it. to find. I'm trying to determine, Dale, that through the centuries. Of the reading of the of the text that we have, and you mentioned the King James version. So you mean the we'll, ones that were ch- changed over just after the the first right? Into the so right, century. so right, so we're we're so I'm giving you credit. I'm I'm saying I'm saying so, so we're going with with your 
interpretation and your reading. And I, and I give you credit again for your research. Obviously, it's very well researched. However, it was allowed by one sh in, in, in some shape or form to come through the centuries, and many people have dedicated their lives to it and have had changed lives. And as I said, this country has benefited from that. So why would we want to go back and say, well, what you learned isn't so correct. This is correct. So if we did have the correct version, would we be an entirely different type of person? Yeah. We wouldn't be an entirely different type of we person. We would be That's more kind of toward it, whatever. Like a seven-year-old way. What's that? We'd be more more toward a representation of, say, how you are, because you have you have this understanding, let's just say, your understanding. How has it benefited you? What, what has this knowledge done for you? Completely transformed my life and allowed me to see through it. Okay. Allowed me to see through the part of myself that I thought was real, mm -hmm. that intellectual part that I was so sure of that thought it had figured things out. And, you know, there's no way that I can give that to you. Mm -hmm. There's no way I can give it to you. So if you were to put it on a resume and said, here, Daniel, I'm going to email it to you, what would you say about Dale? You're a good guy. You're a man of understanding and wisdom. I'm uh, Dale. Okay. Well, I'm just I'm just saying, man, if you got a better way, then I want to know about it. At least it. that's what I call myself. Okay. Okay. See, okay. Uh, this is going to be the, the – I can't wait to get this out to people because it. this is – and I say this with all love in my heart. This is the perfect example of why I do what I do. Mm -hmm. okay. This is the perfect example of why it's important. Maybe someday you'll comprehend and understand what I'm saying about that. But um, I think it's I'm and I'm saying this from the bottom of my heart. I'm honored to be on the show because, you know, there's going to be stuff I'm going to get out of this too. That's going to mm -hmm. show me biases that I'm not aware of, which mm -hmm. is what I was talking about in the beginning. That's why I read atheist material, satanic. Mm -hmm. You know, Josh did the Inside the Church of Satan film like 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and we actually helped fund, put some funding into that. And me, with everything that I thought I knew back then, I didn't. I thought I knew what the Church of Satan was. I thought they worshipped Satan. I didn't know anything about them, you know. So, so, but. so, so me, and, and and I appreciate it. You don't, you don't have to apologize how you how how you think I will interpret things because I really, I mean, you're on the show, so I don't take it that way. But I myself, and maybe representing at least some people of my ilk and belief system type of thing structure, I'm pretty happy, and I feel when we talk about this. If we if we talk about say the spirit of God and and the feeling of a of a oneness and a, and a universality to the presence of God, I felt that in my ignorance. So why would I want to be less ignorant and probably and possibly uh, minimize those feelings and those and, and those intuitions that the presence of God is with me, even in the knowledge that I have right now? Hey, whatever works for you works for you. But you brought me on your show and I agreed to do it. So. Um, if I kind of pulled you on mine and I was trying to move you into whatever you think my way of thinking is, the mm -hmm. shoe would be on a very different foot. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is if it works for you, that's awesome. That's great. And I think for most people it would be enough. It wasn't enough for me. Well, I, I look at, I look at this like in the, in the Bible talks about Mars Hill where Paul went to Mars Hill. And at Mars Hills where everybody brought their religion and brought their belief system and they told stories and everybody wanted to hear what – Others had to say it. And when Paul came up there, he was talking about this figure named Jesus. And they said, you know what? We, we want to hear that. We want to hear some more from you. So once you come back, he was invited back. 
And so you were invited on this show because this is like a sort of like a Mars Hill. And so I'm thinking, hey, is there a better way? Do you have the knowledge that you have? How could it benefit the listeners? And so you haven't heard what I was saying. That's what's great about it. That's why I had to repeat, keep repeating things. It, that's why I told you it's a challenge well, of what is I belief, do when I explained is, about is, the I, the I, I as is, an example. Well, is it is it that I don't I don't hear you, or you haven't made a good case yet? Well, maybe it's not possible to make a good case if one's not open. Hmm. Hmm. To someone who's <laughs> I not have to open. be open because you're on the show. Well, that's true to an extent. Just like yeah. Alex Jones could be, you know, pretty open when he brings mm -hmm. people on to chew him alive. So, mm -hmm. but I'm not saying you're chewing me alive. You know, I know I don't I don't have to keep defending no. that. No, you I, you I won, you, won, you already won points with me when you mentioned uh, a Ted Nugent. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up with Ted. I mean, I didn't. Physically you won, grow you won up some points live. for me. Credibility points right there. Well, I'm just saying, Live Gonzo was like, you know, my one of my musical yeah. rivals as a kid. Well, yeah. I, well, I, can't, I was going to say something, but I can't. Can't I don't want to repeat that on the show. Something he said on the. Hey, audio. listen, man. I grew up playing air guitar to stranglehold. So you know. Awesome. I mean, that, if you ever play air guitar, stranglehold is the song to play. So th that's an interesting. There's an interesting thing there, you know, and it's kind of a side note to what we're talking about here. But let's just say that I bet you I can go to, and I, not saying it's exactly like Christianity, but I bet I could go to 80% of Ted Nugent fans. And I can ask them, what do you think of Ted's voice? And they'll say, oh, I love it. I grew up with him. And then 80% of those people would go, oh, when I said that wasn't Ted's voice. <laughs> people thought he was singing. No, he's playing guitar. You know, how many people actually know something like that? Mm. It's kind of like that with Christianity. It's like when people talk about something being founded on Christianity, and I always have to put it in quotes, I have to say, you know, what is Christianity what is your concept of what that is? You know, is it certain principles or doctrines that they, you know, thought that that was that they established mm -hmm. it on? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it's funny. You know, Christ Christianity. Do you know how many? Well, this was according to what was it? Um, I believe it was something like seventeen thousand five hundred forms in two thousand one of Christianity. And I mean, you know, any philosophy is going to go off in its own little direction, mm -hmm. but. Mm -hmm. You know, the point I'm making is, and that's why I love this interview, because it's this huge spotlight on the difference between relationships with concept versus going toward that absolute base level. You know, I almost want to say, you know, I love that you use the word indigenous in the, you know, indigenous tones, whatever, that real primal direct I don't want to say direct experience mm -hmm. like beyond that and going back to that source that he was trying to point us back to her mm -hmm. to fry our you know Episcopalian priest Cynthia Bourgeau you know she talks about the parables and she said yes or those parables were meant to fry our sockets mm -hmm. like that having those true absolutely you know wide open experiences instead of just mm. kind of, and I did that for a long time. Mm. I lived with the concepts, and I still have to use them to communicate. Mm. Um, so, so Dale, Dale were the the Puritans were they Buddhist? <laughs> what were they? You're going to say they were Christians, right? I didn't. And say, what I'm, no, not, that's a question. This, is, I this is showing me you're not listening to what I'm saying. What version of Christianity <laughs> well, are you talking about? Uh, that's not the version of Christianity. I'm talking about historical truth. Were they were they Buddhist or uh, Islamic or what? And I'm throwing the question back to you. Well, it sounds like it's an evasion, not throwing the question back. It's an evasion because it seems like it, it kind of might... You mean what did they throat. call themselves it, it, or what they were? Here's okay. what I'm telling you. There is no such thing as one form of Christian. Mm. 
That's the part you keep skirting around here for the whole mm. the whole time I've been on here. Dale, now I'm thinking like you're when we were, Well, when we were talking about like the universities and et cetera. Yeah. yeah. That was the point I'm trying to make here is that there's right. no one form of Christianity. There is no such thing as okay, okay. All right. this is Christianity. Okay, okay. okay. Were, were they any form of Christianity? Were they any form of Christians, the Puritans? The Puritans, yes. Yeah. They were a form of Christians? They were a form. They they called themselves Christians. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Hey, well, <laughs> here's good news for you. This book, what is this book in our background? What is it about? Uh, it's just about using the words of Yeshua, of Jesus, to, you know, I use some of the basic words. Um, trying to see if I can pull up the link on Amazon for the book. You know, um, using some of the words that Yeshua used, words like spirit, you know, breath, amen, things like that, and mm. actually using them to tone them in his Aramaic language. Like the word Lord. Lord comes from the old English slough word, which of course mm. is uh, meant loaf word. It was, came out of feudalism, 8th, 9th century feudalism, where the actual word, of course, kurios in the Greek, uh, several words in Hebrew like Adonai, but in Aramaic, the primary word was Maria. A lot of people don't know that. And toning Maria is a pretty good one to, um, you know, it's a pretty good one to tone to allow yourself to get into something. It's like the difference between, you know, having, like I can say the word Lord for two hours nonstop, but if I actually get into the word Maria and get myself in there to me you know it's something that was very normal mm -hmm. 2,000 years ago in that culture but it's kind of gone down it's still held up by uh, within Judaism today mm -hmm. um, but it's one of the things like with the Aramaic when I really started listening to it it had a very particular lilt you know like the beginning of um, you know, the Gospel of John, Bereshit, Etuihua, Milta, just has particular sounds. So the book's in three sections. The first section is basically how I get into what I'm doing, like not necessarily when I first started studying Aramaic, but when I started to really hear it for the first time, which is what made the difference. Looking at it on the page was okay, but if you ever try to learn a language from a book, um, it's not fun. Uh, the first section is that it's about the experience of the death of my mother and um, just having the awareness uh, someone gave me the gift of they were like you know my mother strongest person I've ever known 15 years ago just a few weeks ago that she passed no, sorry um, that. in 2007 and someone gave me a gift before I was you know back in New Jersey at her bedside and she had softball sized tumors all over her body she mm. was basically I think she, what did they say? She was like 57 pounds. Um, and someone said, get up in the bed with her and hold her in your arms. And I found myself getting up in the bed with her and the tones that I had been working with, with the Aramaic, I started toning with her. I started toning the Aramaic Lord's Prayer. And um, I have like a section in the book about that, how the last sound that she made was just a mm sound, which is the letter mem, which is represented uh, by ripples of water. It meant water, flow, expanse. It was the sound for what we would say as mother. Um, and it was the last sound she was able to make in her life. And it, it was just this profound experience, you know, that the last sound she was able to make, she couldn't say, I love you anymore. I'm just like holding her in my arms, toning these ancient sounds that are even older than Aramaic, just from an Aramaic standpoint. 
and it was amazing that you know I was toning her out with water essentially through vibration and the way that she brought me in with water and then our daughter Shamaya who was born several years after that how I toned the Aramaic Lord's Prayer during and after her birth that's the first section is how I got into this the second section kind of picks things apart shows people um, you know part A is like the levels of translation from the obvious to the allegorical to the midrash or comparing down to the sod level sod means secret but not secret like you're not allowed to see it what it actually means is something that's literally right in front of your face but you can't see it because all that you're able to see is the codes that your intellect is projecting upon it so you're not even seeing the actual thing so that the middle is kind of going deeper into the language itself and then the third section of the book is actually toning you know how do you tone as couples facing each other you know um, how can you bring it into a church service how can you do you know make toning circles etc like that um, it's I'm, I'm really happy with the way it turned out because uh, I kept I was able to keep I promised myself to keep it under 200 pages um, and to keep it simple at least in the beginning, the the middle part gets a little heavy with some of the the picking apart, etc. But um, mm -hmm. yeah. What, what what I'm interested in, Dale, is uh, uh, how do you think a person who would uh, say get your book, study your book, and maybe even agree with the tenets of it, uh, would they would they be more spiritual? Would they be more happy? Would they be more forgiving, more loving? That's completely theirs, not mine. They're, I have no control over that. Right, you know, you can lead, I could say you can lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink. But, um, you know, it's funny that there's a lot of books I read on first pass that I don't think much of anything happened to. And then they came back to me several years later when I was ripe and I was open. And they completely peeled my heart wide open and gave me even more of a cosmic vision that I doesn't mean there was anything wrong with me 10 years earlier. Uh, there's so many books that I've got on my shelves that on first pass didn't really do a lot for me. The Gnostic, some of the Gnostic texts were like that, you know. Um, some of the, uh, there was a great book called The Imitation of Christ that I remember the first time it dropped into my lap. I was like, I don't know, not much for me. And then it was like five years later it came back. After I'd already read it all the way through and it really got me on a deep level. I have no control over that. Would it make someone more spiritual? You know, again, it's another one of those, you know, um, things that I, nothing I can do so, about. So that. how would, how would your belief and teachings uh, play out in downtown Asheville? Would it be, uh, are there receptive folks down there? Um, I think they're all down there. You know, you'll, you'll have somebody with, You'll have like groups of American flags and and you know semi-automatic weapons right next to LGBTQ people with purple hair, uh, right next to abortion pro you know pro-choice abortion you know uh, pro-life. Well, they say pro-life, but you know all of that you know would go there. Um, you know, I know what it feels like for me to be open. I know the effect it's had on my personal relationships in my family with my children my babies my wife um, the people that I mentor on a one-on-one -on -one basis you know it's it, it took me a while to get to the place where I realized what I know doesn't really mean anything 
you know, it's that place that goes beyond knowing where you need a knower plus a known and gets to that place of realization that just goes beyond words. And, you know, if it worked in downtown Asheville or not, I don't care. Um, it's funny. Uh, once I started having those more direct experiences and the breath and the toning is a lot to do with that, I lost interest in how it was being received. So, or whether it was, was, or wasn't, I just do it from a pure place and that's enough for me. Mm. I noticed the sort of the, the, the accent on pro-life people. How do you, how do you view those folks? Yeah. Well, I, I don't have a yes or a no in it because what's interesting is it's just the framing of saying, Almost like making, you know, it, it's rotten on both on both extremes. Because I let me put it this way: I know people who, I've met people who use abortion as birth control, which is quite nauseating, you know. And on the opposite side, um, I know people who really are pro-life, and I know lots of people who are, um, I don't know what I would even call them. You know, it's not about the phrase itself, my response. And you notice I did it with both, though. You only mm -hmm. picked up on the one because I started to say abortion and then said uh, pro-choice and then went to pro-life. So I did it on both sides. Neither of them am I completely comfortable with because, uh, yeah. you know, again, it's another example of, of forcing something, forcing some sort of idea on someone else. Yeah. And, yeah. Again, I, I, noticed, know, I noticed I noticed that all the pro-abortion folks are alive so um uh but yeah uh so <laughs> it's not it's funny kind of, but i mean i hear you it's kind, of, it's kind of weird there um but yeah it, so my is, cousin is was it, raped when i was a kid mm -hmm. brutally brutally raped mm -hmm. um all i can say is and you don't need to know anything else of the story but what i will say is um it's so easy to kind of stand outside of something and it, any blanket statement, I don't care who's making it, is utter bullshit, is mm -hmm. utter BS, belief systems. Mm -hmm. Any kind of, it's the blankets that are the problem with us. It's the, you know, so trying you, to have the illusion of the legislation of morality, and I don't care which end it's on. I don't care if I, someone calls himself a, a conservative or a liberal. So you do know? you find, say, like a, say in a, um, in a in a sort of Asheville atmosphere, do you find you have to walk a, a, a line or you'll be either dismissed or hated or well, loved I, I and embraced? I wouldn't care anyway. I'd probably get off on it in some way, maybe. But, um, no, <laughs> right. No. no. Right. It's the thing that's weird about Asheville is it's it's everything. It has this mm. – um, it's probably – I would think it leans more liberal in some ways, but the – you know, its conservative nature is pretty strong too. So yeah. We have a town like that here in Indiana called Bloomington, uh, Bloomington Indiana. I've uh, been there before. It's yeah. the home of IU, and they have a lot of the – you know, uh, uh, tattoo parlors, uh, tarot cards. I know exactly what, yeah, I know, I know, yeah, yeah. And at and the uh, same time, that whole area is, is surrounded by Pentecostals and gun-toting, Bible-believing people. So it's it's just it's all just like Asheville, They've, but they all get along. Somebody told me at one point there was more, and I don't know if this is true, that there was more churches. I've heard it a bunch of times in West Asheville proper where we live than any other place of that size. And I've never been able to confirm or deny that. I've even talked <laughs> to the local newspaper, but I told them maybe it just seems that way. Yeah. But, um, yeah, my, my, my whole point in, in, you know, 
in living my life is moving from you know the difference between something conceptual and something that's directly realization and what another people not, not like i say like if someone asked me about how do i love my baby or why or something like that it's a ridiculous question the uh, you know that doesn't need to be analyzed intellectually in that way but mm -hmm. i mean for a long time people couldn't i wasn't you know i wasn't really very open and it, when i finally got to the point where i started really listening to the people that had mm -hmm. the opposite ideas that's mm -hmm. when things really started shifting so hmm. you know well I, I certainly doesn't matter to me what people think what matters is that for me um, it feels authentic hmm. so well I certainly have had many many people on the show that had the exact opposite opinion of myself but I don't have them I don't I don't have people on the show to so I can hear my hear my belief system being validated I don't need validation but what I do like to know is what other people have learned through their life experiences and uh, Dale Allen Hoffman I appreciate you coming on the broadcast how, how can people get your book uh, it's on Amazon.com. Um, Echoes of an Ancient Dream. Just put Dale Allen Hoffman. Yeah, it's it's been great being on because yeah, I never, I literally not for a microsecond, and this is rare. I never felt talked down to. I never felt anything like that. You know, my I was constantly apologizing just so you didn't think I was. You know, um, this this is the kind of dialogue. That, now let me just cap that with one little thing. You know, DaleAllenHoffman.com is my website. I've got a YouTube, but you know, there's the word peace in Aramaic is shlama. Everybody knows shalom uh, from the Hebrew. And what's interesting is there's like sort of this hippie-ish idea of peace as like a cessation of conflict. Like I said, kumbaya and everybody lives in harmony. But that's not actually what peace means. What peace means is the literal translation for shlama was that all voices were invited to the council fire and allowed to speak fully without threat. And to me, that's the thing that's still not happening. You know, that's why I'm, I, I'm loving this experience. You know, that people can't hear other, they can't hear other opinions, whatever that may be, without feeling somehow threatened. But this kind of dialogue, this is why I said I can't wait to share it. You know, this kind of dialogue is what needs to happen. And I'm just saying I respect you highly and honor you. Mm. And I do not think, you know, in the same way you do, but um, it doesn't matter. And I didn't, you know... I, it's been cool. It's been a fun experience. So. Well, I say tonight, iron has sharpened iron. And uh, uh, Dale, I appreciate you coming on the Edge broadcast. And I'll send you links when it's edited and permanently uploaded. Cool. So thanks for coming on the show. Totally. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. That was